Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Today's case file, the Nashville 6 Covenant Presbyterian School Massacre. Please be advised that you will hear actual footage and viewer discretion is advised. As many of you have heard, the active shooter walked into the Covenant Presbyterian School where they took the lives of six unsuspecting individuals that included three adults and three children. An active shooting, also called a mass shooting, is defined by the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation as an event in which one or more individuals are actively engaged in killing or attempting to kill people in a populated area. Implicit in this definition is the shooter's use of a firearm. Though the FBI has not set a minimum number of casualties, to qualify an event as a mass shooting, U.S. statute The Investigative Assistance for Violent Crimes Act of 2012 defines a mass killing as three or more killings in a single incident. I want to start by sharing some key 2023 numbers with you, none of which include the killers in any case. 139. This is the number of mass shooting attempts that have occurred to date. 23. This is the number of mass shooting events that ended in three or more deaths. 13. This is the number of school shootings that have occurred. 13. That's how many people were injured in a school shooting. 10. That's how many people, six children and four adults, lost their lives in a school shooting. 6. That's how many lives were taken at the Covenant Presbyterian Church, preschool through sixth grade private school, in the capital of country music's Nashville, Tennessee. My 
Monday, March 27th, starred like every other Monday for the last 14 years for Mike Hill, the custodian for Covenant Presbyterian Church and preschool through sixth grade private school. He smiled his larger-than-life smile and waved as the kids walked in and began his day preparing to carry his vacuum cleaner up to the sanctuary like he had done countless Mondays before this one. His thoughts could have been on one of his seven children or maybe one of his 14 grandchildren. He loved to cook and spend time with his family, so he may have been thinking about what he planned to cook for dinner when the shots reverberated through the quiet of the day, shattering the glass door. They called him Big Mike, and he was a force to be reckoned with, but he would be the first of the six to fall. Catherine Kuntz was on a Zoom call in her office when she heard the first shots and the sound of the breaking glass. She recognized it immediately. She had been a big advocate for mass shooter training and knew her staff was equipped to deal with anything that threatened her campus. She quickly dropped from the call, but she didn't hide and she didn't run. She walked out and met the shooter in the hallway where it is believed she attempted to engage the shooter directly. It was in her nature to be steadfast and be a protector of children. Kovi, the unofficial school mascot that affectionately greeted the children daily, remained safely behind in her office. Kovi would never see Catherine again. It is unknown where the shooter encountered Cindy Peak, but those who knew the substitute teacher knew that she had a passion for teaching and caring for children. Her last thoughts were most likely about her own three kids or her husband Chris, who would later state that he knew without a shadow of a doubt that Cindy died protecting the children. The three children who started their day as normal nine-year-old children often do, with a joyous spirit to learn and an innocence that would be memorialized in them forever at such a young age, could never understand how tragedy would devastate the community in the minutes, hours, and days to come. All three were pronounced dead on arrival as they arrived at the hospital in ambulances. The doctors helpless, the damage catastrophic. I want to take a moment to kind of talk through these fallen from this incident. Mike Hill's funeral was the first one to take place. It was on April 4th, 2023. He's just 61 years old, which my father is 77. So I think if I would have lost my father at 61, hundreds of family, friends, and coworkers piled into the church where they did his services. The pastor there who presided over the service at Stevens Valley Church shared a beautiful sentiment and said, you know, he hugged my kids and he knew them by name. He said, maybe this is a sentimental moment, but it's a comfort to me to think that he was there to welcome the children through the pearly gates. Hmm. He was also one of the few African-American church members. He was friends with the pastor who previously founded the Covenant Presbyterian Church where the school was located. I heard of his family saying a lot of things about him. Mrs. Coons or Catherine, she was 59 and actually, she was nine years older than I am, which to me, 60 is really young. Being that I'm 50 now, I really feel like 60 is young. It's believed that she may have been the second person to fall in that shooting. Her body was positioned in the hallway where she laid. And the way that she was kind of laid out kind of gave the investigators an idea that maybe she had either tried to confront or struggle with the shooter. It's very possible that she could have tried to like take the weapon or grab, you know, grab at her or come towards her which I think is a very brave thing to do when you have someone with multiple guns and is already shooting. That's a very scary situation. So, Yeah. And even just those few few moments, however long that struggle lasted, yeah. 
is so very critical in an incident like that. So yeah. it actually could have given a little bit more time for people to be secured behind doors. Yeah, that's true. I had heard some things about her, about her really being a go-getter and a servant, um, despite being married and having two children. And they had also made several moves. She continued to learn and grow personally and professionally. Um, she obtained a doctorate degree in her short tenure at the school. She expanded enrollment you know, selectively by about a third, um, upgraded their athletic and arts programs, playground facilities, and she instilled high levels of professionalism and advancement for faculty, expanded new student programs, including robotics and coding. She also implemented leadership roles for fifth and sixth grade students and created school-based um, parent seminars for the Nashville community. I think it's really interesting the, the the amount of impact that she had in the short amount of time that she was there really speaks to her testament as a person and what she really was bringing to the school. Uh, so that, that's really amazing. I, I feel like this is a, a relevant conversation because I think a lot of times in when there's murders and there's active shooters and people die, a lot of times their lives are kind of shrunken into just that moment of what happened. And you don't really get to know who the who the people were. Like I would have never have known that she had a she had just completed her doctorate and that she had done all these things for the school. That's really that's really amazing. Yeah, and actually, there's a Christian music artist. His name's Stephen Curtis Chapman. He had lost a child when one of his ch children ran over another on accident. Obviously, oh, wow. he had posted a comment on his social media that said, "This incredible woman walked by my side through the darkest time of my life and was a mentor and friend." So Sydney Peake's family uh, described her as Spitfire, whose three favorite roles were mother to her children, wife, and a teacher. Uh, her children describe her as wise, counsel, um, fierce with love. She would join the Nashville Six at the age of 61 years old, um, also young. Cynthia was a substitute teacher at the school. She had just recently relocated to Nashville from Alabama with her husband. One thing that I knew about Cindy was the fact that um, she was actually the governor's wife's friend. Actually, she had plans to meet with the governor's wife that same night to have dinner with them. So. The remaining three of the Nashville Six were all only nine years old. Evelyn DeCouse, Hallie Scruggs, and William Kinley. I couldn't have fathomed being in this situation and being senselessly gunned down at that age. Evelyn's service and funeral was the first of the Nashville Six to be held on March 31st, 2023. Her family said she was a shining light in the world. She had planned to sing... Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World on Friday in a play about jazz at her school, but instead, her family and friends mourn her loss. Country singer Vince Gill sang the song she was to sing in honor of her at her service. I did want to point out about Evelyn, there had been some different articles that had come out where people were saying that she had pulled the fire alarm or she was pulling the fire alarm when she was shot. I don't know if there's any truth in that, but regardless, this was unfortunate. So I don't know that that was true. Yeah. The second nine-year-old Hallie Scruggs was the daughter of the church's lead pastor and the sister to three brothers. Her aunt described her as feisty and incredibly smart. Her dad was actually one of the calls to 911 as he made his way to the school following calls from inside. He had no idea that his daughter would be one of the Nashville Six. Her dad in tears told the media, we are heartbroken, she was such a gift. Her services and funeral were held on April 1st, 2023. Also unfortunate, she actually had three brothers. She was the only girl, so they lost their only girl. 
her dad was the lead pastor and there's been some talk that he had counseled kind of how they do in the church. So not like a behavioral treatment, but that he had actually been a counsel for, for this individual at some point in time. Pastor Scruggs and the shooter. Yes. It's interesting. The last of the kids, William Kinney or Will, had an unflappable spirit. He was kind and gentle, always inclusive of others. How could he not be with two sisters? A friend of the family who set up a GoFundMe said, Will knew no strangers and our hearts are broken for his family as they try to find their way forward. Um, I think just thinking in the loss of a, of a nine-year-old child, and I know I had three kids that were, <laughs> I personally had three kids, and also I, I knew Alicia when she was nine, you know what I'm saying? And I couldn't imagine at that age the, the level of innocence that they have and not really understanding the world and how brutal and dangerous it can be. I could never imagine losing a nine-year-old. Yeah. To me, that would be devastating. It would, absolutely. You know, honestly, I couldn't imagine losing any of my kids at any age, but definitely yeah. at such a long, young age, I would be, I think it would make me so much more just losing them that young would cause me to be so much more confused about yeah. why it happened. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was deployed, uh, I was in the military and, and I was deployed and in my deployments, I was in a situation where I saw kids um, that died immediately as a first responder because I was responding in that type of a situation from a medical perspective and I was providing treatment and I remember thinking I was I remember thinking I have kids I have kids that are this age or my kids were this age at some point and it's really hard not to relate to the children that you see and not to like put your own children in that position and and, and really feel that loss and I can only imagine how difficult that was for the first responders that were going through the building that may have seen those kids that were injured or, you know what I'm saying, that were still needing treatment and whatnot, and to be required to walk past them as they try to close and engage with the enemy or with the shooter, I think that's super impactful that I'm sure that's going to be something they never forget for the rest of their lives. But Absolutely. I've been in the medical field for, for quite a while, and I know that there's people who have, who have been in the medical field for years and years and years, and when something happens where it's, involving young children it's an area where you don't become numb you know to what's happening adults and older people you know you think there's accidents that happen and they lose their lives or there's you know people die of natural causes but when it comes to children it's just it it's just a lot harder to deal with yeah i agree Audrey Hell could have been the girl next door. Born female, Audrey worked as a freelance graphic designer and a part-time grocery delivery driver. She had recently taken to identifying as a male on social media, referring to herself as Aiden, a transgender male. On this fateful morning, Audrey took inventory of the weapons and the ammunition she had spent years stockpiling. She had studied her targets with great detail and had maps with points of entry and exits. She had identified additional targets, but true to her nature, opted for the easier target her own childhood alma mater of the Covenant Private School and Presbyterian Church. As she left home, her mother questioned her about the baggage she was carrying. Was her gender identification a point of contention between her parents? We would later discover that she was under the care of mental health professionals. Was this tied to her sexual orientation, or was there something more off-balanced with her mental health? She had lost a friend in the last year to a sudden car accident, and she had been posting repeatedly about how the loss had affected her. 
but witnesses say the relationship was one-sided. She admired and looked up to Sydney Sims, a college classmate. Was she delusional? She had left the manifesto and a suicide note behind as explanation for the despicable thing that she was going to do, but she never said goodbye to her mom. As she drove toward her target, it's likely that her adrenaline was at an all-time high, her focus was internal, and her thoughts were most likely on feelings of failure. She pulled into the parking lot of the Covenant School on an unexceptional Monday in the same Honda Fit she delivered groceries in. She could have been delivering groceries for all anyone knew. Her existence manifested itself in admiration of others like Sydney, and she took her last moments to send an Instagram message to a childhood friend, Avriana Patton, a radio host. So basically that post I made on here about you, that was basically a suicide note. I'm planning on dying today, she wrote. This is not a joke, she said in all caps. She stated, you'll probably hear about me on the news after I die. Was she drowning in an unexceptional life? Her college classmates described her as childlike, carrying stuffed animals to class and putting on childish stickers on her computer. They said her art was juvenile and childish. This is my last goodbye. I love you, she stated, before climbing out of her car and walking towards the glass doors of the school. She knew the doors would be locked, and so she shot through the glass, breaching the doors with gunfire. This probably gave the kids and staff for Covenant School time to take appropriate actions to hide and call for help. We would see her die on body cam footage. Was she trying to sensationalize herself in death in a way she had not been able to do in real life? There are some things that just in speaking about anybody that's involved in a crime, you know, they look at things like like the age and gender and occupation and whatnot. Um, she was 28 years old and she had attended the school, but she attended the school when she was very young. Um, the school goes from preschool to sixth grade. They only have about 200 students and the cost to have a student there. And they do, I guess, provide scholarships. I don't know at what rate or anything like that. But annually, it can range between 10 grand to almost 17 grand a year to attend that school. So that, that tells me that she comes from, you know, parents were, who worked like she wasn't, you know, what I'm saying like she went to a good school. So yeah, for sure. And actually, the school she went to after that was a magnet school. And I know for sure that you have to do an audition and an interview. And then in the school that she went to for high school, it was also a magnet school where she had to do an audition, an interview, and an essay. So when when I think of schools like that, I think about, it, you know, in, in order for your child to go do an audition and an essay, like that's that's a pretty big deal. And whether you're shy or you're outgoing or anything to be judged in that manner, you know, to attend a school. So those weren't just, you know, it, it wasn't a public school. So yeah. more was involved than, you know, just signing her up. Her college, she she so she graduated college, um, the Nasi College of Art and Design in 2022, and it also is a private college as well, which is the reason that a lot of people knew of her because the school has approximately about 35 staff members, which is pretty low. Their acceptance rate is also very low. For well, I consider low, 47 percent acceptance rate. They accept less than half of people who even apply, which tells me she was pretty intelligent. The tuition there, 23K a year. Wow. The CEO of the college actually said um, his name Cy Cyrus Vattendust. 
he said he actually said that he recalled her being a really good student, dedicated, and also a skilled artist. A teacher had talked about, you know, when when everything happened, she said she was so shocked. And she said, you know, she said, when you work on a campus, there's always one or two people who in the back of your mind that you think something could happen. She said she would have been the last person on the list. I wanted to know about her in the now. And there really was only one person. Obviously, she graduated in 2022. There was somebody in her class that had mentioned that she had a childlike obsession that he felt like she was trying to stay a child. Now, there there's a photo that you can go look at online where when she's graduating, what she's wearing, and she's wearing a barrette, she's wearing a shirt with characters on them. And, it, you know, you could assume anything about that. A little bow in her hair. Yep, a little bow in her hair. Yeah, but um, I also saw some uh, some some drawings that she did of um, Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. She was talking about her friend um, Sydney, and they were cartoonish and like like she like you could tell she had like a like a childlike spirit, almost like a Peter Pan type syndrome, like where you, you like you still trying to be a kid. Officer Rex Engelbert was finishing his coffee and most likely preparing to finish some work. If he is like most police officers, the mundane paperwork is the least exciting part of the job, but Officer Rex was not one to complain. He loved being a police officer. Detective Mike Caluso and Sergeant Mathis were across town, also bearing down on administrative work, when the call came across the radio. These calls were not new. There had been many instances of false alarms for mass shooters in the past. But, Officer Rex would say, this one felt different. As they approached the school, muffled gunfire could be heard in the building. Give me, give me three! Let's get three! He shouted to random police officers who were showing up. Officer Rex and Detective Caluso both breached the building from different directions, but both would reunite on the second floor. They described the smoke in the halls as they made their way down towards the sound of gunfire, stinging their eyes. Many of the police officers carried non-tactical weapons and had failed to grab body armor in their haste of responding to this call, entering the school with no protection from the shooter's weapons. The smell of gunpowder hung in the air. It probably felt unnatural for that smell to be present in the school. The blaring of the fire alarm as they made their way to the second floor made communication that much more critical. Was the shooter reloading? Shots fired, shots fired, shots fired, move. Right, right, right. Push the LPVO, push the LPVO, go right. Move, move. Watch out, watch out. Officer Rex's training kicked in and he fired the first five shots striking the shooter. Detective Caluso fired four rounds.
I think the, that breach was very dramatic, and um, and it's really cool that that they captured that in video for training purposes, for learning purposes, and things like that. Absolutely. A couple things that I want to point out. So there's there's a lot of, of research that the FBI started doing. They actually went back to 2000. So like from 2000 to 2017, they wanted to to pull some information together on active shooter events. And that specific research, one of the things that they found was most incidents end in less than two minutes. And practically all of them are under five minutes. The longest ones that have taken place have been Uvalde and have been this incident. With that being said, I just want to point out the fact that if anybody's ever called 911 and you're requesting a police officer or emergency assistance, them arriving in five minutes within five minutes is extremely rare. Yeah. And the fact that they were able to capture this on their body, body cams, the way that they handled the situation, people can watch that video. So, so for people who are, who are law enforcement or military, people who know about tactical movements and um, breaching doors and clearing, clearing buildings, yeah, a lot of people can come out and say, well, they didn't do this right or they didn't do that right or you know, they could have done this better. But I'm going to tell you what, the fact that they were able to show up, get some keys, right? Get some keys and move through that building fast enough to get her before she did any more damage is incredible, regardless of whether or not they had all their gear. You know, a lot of these guys had never worked together. So you're talking about guys that are talking to each other in plain language because they know that they don't they don't all work together and maybe they don't all know each other. So they're they're working in a manner that's that's not typical of a lot of times how you train. One thing I thought was interesting specifically about their training that one of them mentioned, I believe it was Rex had said that in their training, they go through something that's that kind of stimulates the stressors of an event like this. So like the noise and um, the yelling and things of that nature. And he said that that definitely helped with this situation. And so I definitely think that in watching that body cam, I think a lot of law, law enforcement agencies should review that and make some some positive changes in their agencies. Yeah, and we did that in the military as well. We also simulated the sounds of battle. We would interject smoke into our training, uh, gunfire, explosions, simulated rounds, simulated explosions, like um, simulated blood, like all that stuff is really important when you're going through training because the first time that you see that type of chaos, you don't want it to be live action. So you do a lot of training and it looks like these cops received that type of training. And so they were very well versed in how to respond and they responded appropriately. Even to, to be able to pull up and go, hey, give me three guys we're gonna breach. And then to be able to systematically go through that building, one building at a time. Now, from a perspective of an active shooter, and I say this because I've participated in active shooter training where I was the active shooter as an actor. I would say that from that perspective, it didn't appear like the shooter had prepared for a gun battle with the cops. No. She was in the open, back exposed, shooting out of a window at potential officers reporting from the ground. And that could have been lack of experience, lack of training, the fact that she didn't have a, a military background or, or anything like that. She was an easy target in terms of how they were responding. And, and also, it appears like she's in the process of getting ready to try to reload, but she had two long guns on her body so she could have she maybe not have even needed to reload she could have just switched weapons you know she right. had other weapons so I, I think that's a little bit important and that's, that's kind of critical because 
I don't feel like she had prepared for a long standoff. Right. At that point, she was just out in the open as if this was part of her plan. Like she was already intended to die. And also she didn't go through the building in search of an exit. So she didn't go through the building and then leave through a building and then get in her car and then go to another target. I, right. I believe if that would have been her intent, it would have been maybe possible for her to do that. One thing that I want to point out as well about the officers is that when you respond to something, you know, police, first of all, police don't always have a budget for training. And for the training that they do get, typically most officers will never encounter an incident to, to draw their weapon and shoot. And definitely most officers will not encounter a situation where they shoot and kill somebody. And so something that I noticed in their interviews when they're speaking to the media is the composure that they're trying to maintain from not being emotional. And there's many reasons for that, but something that I noticed in the video and then hearing them speak later was that for Engelbert, so he was the one who fired first at her. He fired five, five rounds. There is an additional four rounds that are fired by Michael Colasso. After they realized that she was down and no longer a threat, Michael Colasso moved to continue clearing the building. So even though research shows that practically all incidences are only one individual, you always want to assume that there could be others in there and continue to clear the building. So he began to do that. Michael Colasso, who fired the final shots, the four shots, he said that he went to exit the building the same way that he came in and he ended up coming out a different door. I think mentally this was tough on him, as but, I'm sure it was all of them. But, but you know, one thing that I want to highlight is that, is that Michael was a detective. He was. Yeah, where, where Rex Nine was a veteran. Yeah, where Rex was a police officer. So I don't know that Mike would have been the next guy to, to continue clearing the building if he's in the capacity of, he was responding like, like for example, if I was responding as a former soldier, I probably wouldn't then go and clear the rest of the building. That's like a, a, a role for the police to finish doing. And this is really sad, but as they were going into the building, they were stepping over some bodies. Yeah. And it is, it is protocol for all law, law enforcement that they eliminate the threat first. So, and this is why it's so important for some of the things that we'll mention later, but so important for people to be trained in life-saving measures, especially yeah. in a when you're at some place like a school. So in this case, there was obviously only one suspect, and that was Audrey Hill, and she was killed. As for the evidence, she had two assault rifles, one handgun. There was a lot of shell casings and video footage from the police officer's body cam, her suicide note and manifesto. There were maps and social media contact. Among these items were month-long plans, other identified targeted locations, discomfort with being made to attend the Covenant Presbyterian School, and seven firearms were owned by her, and they were all purchased legally from October 30th, 2020 to June 6th, 2022. 47 items were seized from her home, and that included yearbooks, folders, journals, firearm training, and the suicide note on her desk and her laptop. As for the victims, the victims appear to be random at this time. And for the motive, the motive is also unknown at this time. But there was a writing found that may signal that the school was targeted because she hated that she was forced to attend it, which would make sense. 
And that's really interesting because I know being that she was transgender, um, that's why I asked at the very beginning, was her was her sexuality part of the driving force for her? Because why would she have hated that school so much? When I was researching for this case, some things that I found very interesting were that when most people spoke about her from any of her schools and anybody that lived in her neighborhood, anybody that went to her church, everybody spoke about her being quiet, religious, very nice, a very high achiever. She excelled academically. People talked about how how beautiful her art was. You know, her college talked about how she was like your model student. So nobody in, in any of that that I found, you know, nobody was saying, oh, I expected something strange of her. There was one person at one school that had made a comment about her, him thinking that she had a fascination with remaining a child. And I hear that, but um, I also look at her life. And and the school only went to sixth grade. Uh, the reason why I say that is because I look at what she was doing with her life at the time. It, like, it doesn't sound like she had a consistent job. It sounded like she was doing, like, like she was like trying to get by. She was still living at home with her parents. That's true. She um, she was struggling with her sexual identity, right? She was she was in this transition. She'd only started calling herself Aiden over the last year on social media. You know, she it looks like she comes from a very religious family that you know paid a lot of money for her to go to a religious school, and so I think they were they were trying to push a dogma on her or a some type of religion focal, like, you know, injecting a religious kind of mindset into her that she didn't agree with and didn't align with her as a person. You know, I grew up in a very religious home and I also went to a Christian school and I can tell you that there's a lot of students in a Christian school who have behaviors that you would think aren't typical of somebody going to a Christian school. And there's kind of a a little joke that people say about preacher's kids saying that preacher's kids are the worst in a setting growing up in in a home that's very religious and attending a religious school, you know, you're told all the time what's good and what's bad, you know, according according to your religion. And in looking at this with a very open perspective, in a religious school they're only going to be accepting of certain things. And so if at any point in time she was feeling like, you know, if she was feeling like she wanted to be, you know, a boy at that age, that definitely is not something that would have been in alignment with her church, with her school, with her family, for sure. You know, that would have been a struggle for her family. Yeah. And I think it would have been a struggle for her. But then I also think about the time that, you know, when I was six, at the age of six, I wasn't thinking about my sexuality. You know, at the age of six, I didn't know, I didn't, first of all, I didn't know there was a difference in sexuality. And it wasn't really until maybe like seventh or eighth or ninth grade where you're now, well, I don't know, like sixth grade, I don't know, Alicia, you're, you're younger. So at, in sixth grade, were you thinking about boys? Yes. <laughs> but I feel like in elementary school, you're in one class and it's with those, those people in that age group. But once I got into sixth grade, that's where I learned everything because I was also with seventh and eighth graders who were older than me and who were starting to do more stuff. Right. I feel like if if I was still just with sixth graders in sixth grade, I still would have remained not really knowing much about that stuff until I was older. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So 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 I could see where she would be like beginning to become attracted to to girls in sixth grade. You know what I'm saying? And maybe that's where that the beginning of that seed of conflict. Did she go to a private did she go to a public high school? She went to magnet schools. Okay. 
So you have to audition at those schools. Okay. And most of the time submit essays and you have an interview. So you have to be accepted. I guess the reason I'm, I'm, I'm asking is, she, did she go to a religious? It was oh, they weren't religious. Oh, so, religious. So the schools that, that followed that school were not religious. Yeah. And one of the things that the police say said initially when they were able to review some of some of her writings was that she mentioned specifically with this school. And now she had some other places listed that she planned to go to after the school. Yeah. The fact that she picked the school first tells me that that was most important to her for whatever reason, or it was the easiest for her. But at that age, so as we're talking about this and I'm thinking how you could feel at that age, well, if you're even experiencing. Before you pass that on, I think it's important what you just said. And I, and I want to kind of talk about that a little bit because you said she picked it because it was either the easiest or because it was her primary target, right? Is, is that what you said? Yes. So, so if it was the easiest, right, then that, it, the motive would be different. Does that make sense? Because it, cause if, if it's like I got five targets and this one is the easiest, so I'm going to start here, then the school wouldn't have been the motive. Right. You know what I'm saying? But if her sexuality was the motive, I don't know. I, I'm kind of conflicted on that a little bit. but I, I honestly feel like the... And, and I know other things are going to come out, but I really feel like it's tied to her religious background. And yeah. I really feel like it's tied to how, how she saw herself. Yeah. And something that stuck out kind of um, strange to me as well is that when I looked up the school and the school talks about what they offer. So if, if you're to go look at the site and, and you want to see, you know, hey, is this somewhere where I want to put my children? One of the things that it talks about is it talks about how they have a program at the school and I don't know if this program existed when she was at the school, but that they try to instill leadership skills in their students. And so they provide them with a mentor. I don't know who her mentor was, but if, if she was able to go to other schools and people saw her as being normal and, you know, nobody really had much negative things to say about her. It makes me wonder if she specifically mentioned the school and, being upset about having to go there, it makes me think that she had a bad experience at school. So what was that bad experience at school? And was it attached to religion or was it attached to, was it her mentor that she was assigned to? Was it, it there's a number of different things. Then my question is, is that what, what caused her to question her sexuality too? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. There, there's a lot of stuff to unpack there that I'm sure we won't be able to do it in, in just one podcast. So as, as more things come out, we're going to have to revisit this case, uh, maybe with some bonus episodes and and kind of bring things back together to to really solve this. And really, we know who did. We know who did what. The, the case is solved, but not the case of why did she do what she did? Like, here's a person who does not have the persona of someone who would be an active shooter. You know what I'm saying, and then she was she something changed that caught, that drove her to this, and, and it's really like nagging on me as to why did she do this? Like you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. So you know how she was very childlike as she was older, and the ages of the kids in that school are that's like your little childhood. So maybe she feels like she didn't really get that that nice little kid childhood, and so she's. She's acting like a child now that she's older and maybe she targeted that school because that's where she felt like her childhood was taken in some way and she wanted to do the same thing to the other kids or just attack the school in general. Alicia, that's a great call out. And I didn't think about that. That's a great observation. Um, something that's interesting in what you're talking about, Alicia, is that there was a, a photo that somebody had posted online 
of her yearbook. And so you were able to post a quote that was meaningful to you. And her quote was, some of the most real things in the world are the things you can't see, the Polar Express. And that stuck out to me because, you know, when you're when you're a kid and you're into make-believe and you're, and I actually used to like Polar Express a lot. That's like the number one movie they play for Christmas parties for little kids. That's the movie I watched when I was like in kindergarten at my at my Christmas party. I think about that often. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. It's funny that you'd say that. But, but yeah, when I saw that, I was thinking, and, and it made me think of it when you were talking about that, is that there's a time frame that I think she she either was stuck in or wanted to be in that she recognized as being good because something also stuck out to me about the girl who she reached out to. So this girl was a fellow basketball player and she said she was friends with her when they were young, but she hadn't talked to her in, in years. You know, she's 28 years old that she had reached out to her and made a comment about her being like, you're one of the most beautiful people I've known, which means she's stuck in who this person isn't the same person they were when they were younger, I guarantee you. So because we change, you know, we evolve year after year. The person you were five years ago isn't the person that you are today. So the fact that she felt to reach out to her tells me that there was an attachment that meant a lot to her about this girl. So I wonder if her innocence was lost at some point in time in that time frame. That's a really good observation i really like the fact that they went back to that quote too absolutely i wonder that's going to come back up in in the manifesto or the suicide note i'm wondering if it is and you know and something else that was interesting to me so so she is 28 years old right so she's been out she's been out of high school for a while she did just graduate college in 2022 so i'm not sure why there was a gap that would be a pretty significant gap between um, high school and college so i'm not sure why the gap but her mom posted something on her Facebook in 2019. So she would be 24 at this point, not a child. And she posted something that said, I found this in a devotional book that I loaned to Audrey. And she put a heart and she posted the, the, a picture of the page and it says, I love God. And now there's something else that they also had published that her mom put up. And this was a couple years prior to that just about her being proud that her art professor had um, recommended her f- to be submitted for some type of, you know, art thing. So that's something that I would post as a parent, this, this religious one. And not to say that I, you know, if I was religious, I wouldn't post something religious, but at 24 years old, I don't know. I don't know if that's something that that just kind of stuck out to me and it may not be anything at all, honestly, but it does signal to me that at 24, cause if at 28, she's identifying herself as Aiden at 24, more than likely, she was already struggling with those feelings. And this stuck out to me because of the time frame. because I think her family was struggling with who she was feeling like she was. Yeah. She didn't make any type of um, statements about God when she was planning on committing suicide. Like she's not, when she was telling her friends, she's like, I'll see you in another life. She didn't say, I'll be with God or, you know, God, I'll, I'll be walking with Jesus. Or she like, there was no religious re- response in, in her goodbye at all, indicating she was going to heaven or, you know, anything like that. So I think there was a disconnect between her and the church. And I think it had to do with her sexuality. And we'll probably learn more about it as we go through her suicide note and her manifesto, whenever that, that comes out. Looking forward to hearing that. Yeah, for sure. So what are the lessons learned? 
So training. Training is definitely essential for all parties involved. The way that things played out really showed that the school had had properly trained and exercised in order to be able to close their doors and protect as many children as they possibly could. You know, their exercising and preparation was absolutely key. And then communication. So you can you can see by watching the body cam and just listening to the stories that communication is honestly the most important life-saving measure that you can have is communicating effectively. I agree. And, and I think it was not just beyond the, uh, beyond the school, also the police training and the police exercises. You could tell that they did their due diligence as well to be prepared for that type of a situation. So they responded quickly as opposed to everybody gathering outside, figuring out who's going to go in. Like um, it was really, it were really good executed where I feel like some additional work needs to be done is the 911 operators. They were annoying. Listening to the 911 calls is extremely frustrating with the, the lack of compassion and the lack of response that you get from the 911 operator. And I've been on a 911 call and it's really annoying when you're calm and someone's telling you to calm down. <laughs> it's so frustrating yeah, um, because you are calm. You know, you're, 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 you're trying to express certain things, but they want to over talk you and they want to control your, your, you know what I'm saying? As opposed to, I do know that they're trained to control the, the conversation and they go off of the script. So it, it's very based on the incident. And so sometimes I think they can forget that they're talking to people, you know, people, pe- people that are going through something traumatic, typically, you know what I'm right. saying? There's there's no level of like comforting or, you know, I understand what's going on. Like I, I feel there's some work that needs to yeah. be done there. The 911 operator calls that I've l- listened to, a lot of them have been disconnected, no connection with the, with the with the person who's on the other end of the call. There's some work that needs to happen there. And I'm not a 911 operator, but yeah, I feel like that, that, that system is there's something flawed with it. But also something that I I noticed as well is that in one of the 911 calls the person wasn't giving very concise information. And obviously when you're going through something traumatic, you're not always thinking in that manner. But I think training should include, especially for an active shooter event, the key things that you need to get on the phone and say, you know, right. all the extra stuff is extra stuff. Like you need to be quick and you need to be concise with the information that you're giving to have the, the best outcome. Yeah, I agree. For our call to action, if you're if you're a civilian, uh, meaning you're not in law enforcement or you're not a um, some type of response um, it's important that you're familiar with the emergency and disaster plans for the organization that you work in, whether that's a school, a college, a business. You never know when there's going to be an active shooter or a mass shooter in your in your place of business. Uh, and so it's really important to understand what that plan is and, and how you're supposed to react. If your organization is not doing training associated with active duty or mass shooters, then I encourage you to bring that up to your leadership um, because that's really important training. Even if it's just discussing what you do, it's important to have that conversation and have an idea and have a plan. Take that active shooter training. If it's, if it's offered, take the training. It's important that you don't find yourself in a situation that you've never thought about. Uh, that's a lot of times that's where that paralysis comes in. That action paralysis will happen because you will not have thought of what it is you're supposed to do. Uh, I know when I was going through training, we used to teach the, um, the run, hide, fight. Worst case scenario, remember the run, hide, fight. That's very simple to remember. Also, maintain situation awareness. Always know the situation of the, of the building. You see someone strange outside, call that out. Tell someone. Never just assume everything's okay. If it, if it stands out and your spidey senses is telling you this, is, this looks weird or this is, this is an issue, then let somebody else know. It may be something that you need to, that you need to address. Uh, again, the run, hide, fight, you know, get some active shooter training and, and know, know what you're supposed to do. If you've 
experienced something like that and and maybe you weren't directly impacted but you were in the vicinity of something where, where something like this happened and you're you have trauma from it or you have some type of ptsd then seek help for that trauma uh if you're in law enforcement then you know advocate for training this is really important you should not only be doing training in terms of how to respond, but you should also be doing training in those high critical areas where um, our potential targets like shopping malls, schools, movie theaters, any place where a large amount of people gather, uh, you should be doing training in those environments. Um, also maintain situational awareness. Uh, treat every case the same regardless of the call. A big part of, of where I think there was some risk was a lot of the police officers that responded didn't have their body armor. You know what I'm saying? So so that's here you are putting yourself at risk and you're putting your family's security at risk as well. So though that body armor should be somewhere where you can grab it as you're on your way to a call or it should be in your vehicle. I know in the military, when I was deployed, I always kept my body armor either close to me or in my vehicle so that whenever I had to go, it was there. I, I never had Absolutely. to worry about going into a fight without my body armor on. And also seek help to cope with trauma. I've had to, to fire my weapon in, in the course of, of my career as a soldier, and I know that there's some trauma that comes with even having to do that, whether it's you're uncomfortable with what you had to do, or sometimes you may even think I'm too comfortable with what I had to do. Like both ways are, are traumatic, you know what I'm saying? So find a way to, to get some help around that, whether it's talking to a professional, talking to you know um, someone who can help you cope with that, who's a professional who can help you deal with that. We're going to give you guys in the show notes a link to our website. And on our website, if you go under the tab that says get help, you will find training for active shooter. You will find organizations that offer help with coping with trauma, um, a lot of resources. So if you're looking for any resources that can help your organization, yourself or emergency responders, then um, go to our website and check that out. That out. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.